Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Nash. In this episode, I talk with Guy Pajarni, founder of Sneak, a developer tooling company focused on securing open source alongside building a business. We discuss the parallel paths between the transformation from ops teams to DevOps and where security teams are right now, building security tools focused on the people who will be using them, and who owns the problem of vulnerabilities in open source. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for joining me today, Guy. Oh, thanks for having me. So we'll start the same way I start with everyone. How you got into this crazy business? You know, sort of what was your path into uh, now having, uh, I think, your second security company that you founded? Uh, I guess it right? depends on how you count. It might be uh, so founded first, but being in quite a few. Yeah. Um, uh, well, for me, it kind of starts a fair bit back. So I sort of dabbled in security just as an interest, even as, a, as kind of a high schooler. Uh, just, you know, learning some things. Um, and then I got into, I'm Israeli. So I got into the Israeli army for, um, shall we say, sort of security related, uh, sections and built up a little bit more skills. And then when I got out of the army, I joined a company called Sanctum that actually built the first web app firewall. So that was sort of interesting. It was, you know, we had to evangelize and explain what SQL injection was and what cross-site scripting was and convince people they have the disease, right? Just sort of huh. explain that, that this is something they should care about. How long, um, how long ago was that? <laughs> I date I'm myself trying, here I'm a little bit. This is, you, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. This is uh, 2002. Yeah, um, okay. Just thinking so, back to when that those were, were new uh, boogeymen, as it were. <laughs> yeah, precisely. So this is the Sanctum has been around for a few years before I joined. And uh, then when I joined in 2002, it was still still sort of an education process. Um, so had the first web firewall app shield that kind of died with <laughs> with JavaScript, you know, sort of relied <laughs> on slightly more static websites. Uh, but then also a, a black box security tester called AppScan uh, and a static analysis product called uh, AppScan Developer Edition, so sort of, um, related a little bit to what I do today, which does a static code analysis. So this was Sanctum got acquired by Watchfire, a Canadian company. I moved to Canada. Watchfire got acquired, uh, what acquired by IBM, uh, and uh, that's I left IBM and founded uh, Indeed a company. Uh, and I guess Courtney, that's how we met, where I founded a web performance yeah. company. So sort of did the unusual leave security uh, and go into uh, performance, which was very eye opening. Yeah, um, I mean, you were chasing some interesting things, though. It seemed like you had an eye for what was happening at the time. Yeah, I think there was a lot of um, a, a lot of what drove me there was actually some interesting technology that has been evolved in the world of web security more than it has been elsewhere. The basically this automated analysis of websites and uh, ability to to sort of reverse engineer them for security flaws. Right. Um, so basically, in Blaze, we went ahead and applied some similar logic for performance to so sort of reverse engineer and correct web performance problems. Um, so uh, yeah, so Blaze was was very kind of eye-opening for performance, got acquired by Akamai, was CTO at Akamai for a few years. Um, and sort of during this time, kind of learned to uh, uh, sort of see this new world of web performance, of velocity, of the kind of empowering community around DevOps and around performance and making the web better. Um, so uh, I guess about a year ago or so left uh, left Akamai to found uh, my my second startup, Sneak, uh, which there's sort of a lot of aspects to it, but a lot of it is that I'm trying to um, kind of help promote some of this uh, group championing that we see in the world of web performance, you know, just sort of this community-driven, developer-driven, 
uh, acceptance of, you know, operations is everybody's problem or, you know, everybody's opportunity performance is everybody's problem and try to sort of help move that along into the security world as well. Right. So now security is everyone's problem. We Precisely. Yeah. We've known that. Many people have known that, but that, that comes across as possibly um, ab- about the same as saying operations is everyone's problem 10 years ago, right? It's, it's still counterintuitive to, to many people. Yeah, precisely. It's it's basically just behind. Um, and I think that's an opportunity, right, to take many of these learnings that we've had to to move along DevOps, right, to move along kind of breaking down that barrier and by doing so make ops that much better, um, right. basically bring that into security. And it's yeah. it's basically the same problems that we that we encountered then that we encounter now today in security. And well, we still kind of encounter them in ops as well. Mm-hmm. Um Give me an example of one such sort of problem that you're you're thinking of. Uh, uh, let me give you three, right? Just for a quick one. So, <laughs> so one is uh, one is team size. So ops was always this sort of small, uh, small team external to um, to the development team. Like the number of operations people compared to the number of coders was so small, it was really not realistic that the ops team would be able to deal with the pace of change and flexibility. So they became these naysayers and right. blockers that just the department don't allow of no. to exactly. Yeah. Um, and so basically, you know, I could have swapped the word ops for the security there and basically leave the sentences the same, right? Security is the small outmanned uh, team that is sitting external to the application and really has no shot at, uh, at at keeping up. And because of that, it just becomes this naysayer. It becomes this blocker. Yeah, so, and even, even worse than ops, right? Because, I mean, ops is, ops is worried about various things, you know, uh, worst case scenario, the site goes down or whatnot. But the sort of worst case scenario for security is, is well, it's worse, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but at the same time, like they're both around, um, they're, they're both around risk reduction, right? Like in the case of security, it's about uh, reducing the risk of somebody attacking you, hacking you, of of information leaking out, of user data leaking out, uh, of somebody taking over your servers. And in the case of Ops, it was around, you know, reducing the risk of your servers going down, of you not handling some influx of data, uh, etc. So, so That's to an extent, point. there, yeah, to an extent, there's a lot of similarity there as well. But how do you how do you promote risk reduction without being a fear monger, right? Without, uh, without just sort of saying the world, you know, the sky's falling, right? And how, um, and instead be productive. And DevOps, I would say, succeeded in that. Thinking people think of of DevOps positively now. They think of all the awesome things that an ops team, a DevOps team, can do for them, um, and would be amazing to try and convert that that sentiment and that knowledge and that community uh, into the world of security. Yeah, and it's not even just that that they're sort of culturally awesome, but they're awesome for the business now, right? I mean, if you can deploy X times a day, if you can respond to demand and the market faster than other people, it's it's no longer just kumbaya and we all get along better. I mean, it's a it's a competitive business advantage, right? Yeah, precisely. And and we still need to find the analogies for that in security. So today in ops, it's almost you know it feels almost obvious that right. you know there's all this goodness. Um, but it didn't feel that way before, right? It again, it just felt about you know this this was around around just risk reduction, and you didn't see the upside. So in security, we need to see you know how can we you know make security an aspect of quality? How can how can we feel like we can move faster because security is something that's built in and is a concern we no longer have, you know? And how can it make us more productive eventually? Yeah, um, it's like it's that seminal image, the meme of the little girl with the house burning down behind her, right? It's like. Mm-hmm. You know, dev. You know, I'm done. Dev's done. 
ops problem now. It's like, and now people look at that and they laugh because they're like, oh, it's funny. It used to be that way. Um, and there's, yeah, that, that meme, that, that moment hasn't come quite yet. I see it for security. Yeah, precisely. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's an endeavor. It's nothing that's going to happen overnight. You know, even the DevOps, you know, as popular as it may be today, many people claim the title without, you know, walking the walk. Um, yeah. Well, there's, there's a risk of cargo culting there, right, too, because um, some of the patterns are going to be the same as for security and some of them aren't. Um, and you can't just slap some DevOps on it and hope it's all going to be real shiny. Yeah. And th- there's an interesting delta between cargo culting and thought leadership, you know, sort of are these like basically the same thing, right? And, you know, I, I do believe that, um, you know, we learn from each other and we build software the way that everybody around us kind of claim we don't reach all of the conclusions ourselves right we do rely on our surrounding on our community to tell us what best practices are right mm-hmm. so we don't sit down and analyze every little bit um so in the world of ops i think we've all kind of come to understand that continuous deployment is good that measuring everything is good that uh you know moving faster and uh you know sort of shipping code and testing it in the real world environment but understanding what's going on is a good thing um in in um so you know from most people today we understand that and there's also sort of case studies but i I think to get that ball rolling oftentimes people somewhat copycat there's a little bit of that cargo cult Mm -hmm. uh but they basically again the sort of the flip side of that is they perceive it as an aspect of this is the way good software is built and start off by doing it a little bit like through the the recipes uh and oftentimes continuing even doing so just by why, what's prescribed by the open source world, by the thought leaders in the space, uh, and then later on learn that they actually reap many benefits from it. I want to talk a bit about so what you're up to with Sneak and 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 that secure development sort of side of that of the coin. I mean, because you know one of the things when you talk about taking some of the patterns or principles of DevOps and trying to start applying them to um, to the security world, you know, clearly one of the transformative aspects of DevOps was devs owning their code in production, right? Developers owning their code in production. There's no longer throwing it over the wall and going and high-fiving it in the bar on Friday night and letting ops handle the fires. Or, I mean, that's the that's one of, I would say, one of the foundational notions. You know, you you build it, you run it, whatever it was that, that Werner said. And and so it strikes me that, that the parallel pattern in security is certainly starting to focus on developers owning the security as, in as much as they can, right? Owning some of the pieces of the security that they can for, for what they're building. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the one missing piece there and what we're trying to sort of help do in Sneak as well, and, and various others I think are are starting to do this, which is great, um, is is tooling, right? In the world of ops, I guess in, in any new competency, and that includes ops and it includes security, you can't expect everybody to become experts overnight. In fact, you can't really expect them to become experts in everything, even right. over the long run. Um, and when we don't have the expertise, we revert to tools. Um, and, you know, we, we, we hope that tools can help us do it. So in the world of ops, it might be, you know, all sorts of instrumentation-based capabilities like New Relic or, you know, Dynatrace or whatever sort of the tool of choice is to kind of introduce and overhaul this world of, of APM or performance monitoring uh, and suddenly get insight that we didn't have before, right? And that enables us to do all sorts of things and, and to own, you know, have your code, own your code in production. So I think today security, security lacks in those aspects. It lacks in the dashboards, uh, but it also lacks in general in tools because there's no shortage of security tools out there. That's no doubt. Right. But these tools are heavily, heavily, almost exclusively these heavy enterprise security tools. They are not developer friendly. 
you know, they are not self-serve. They, again, tend to be fear-mongering. And, you know, they're not a welcoming society. And I think it, it expands. We need to move not just the tools themselves, but also the the sort of the tooling vendors into this world of the developers, right? For start off, you need to be where the developers are so the developers are aware of these tools. Second is the tools need to be built and modeled after developer tooling companies and ops tooling companies, not the sort of enterprise cybersecurity company so that you would want to use it as a developer, as an operator. So I think in Sneak, like one of maybe the guiding principle that we have is we are a developer tooling company that does security. And if you see, you know, the people we have on the team, if you see the advisors we brought in, you know, everybody is very much focused on, you know, we are building a developer tooling company. It is open source friendly. It has a true mission of securing open source alongside sort of, you know, building a business. And it's it's constantly hard, kind of this, this message that I mentioned before around reducing risk without being a fear monger uh, or kind of encouraging reducing risk without being a fear monger. But it's basically the challenge we're on. Because developer tooling companies, ops tooling companies, they're positive companies, right? They are, they're builders. They're not just protectors. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're builders. They help building walls is a good thing as well. But, you know, you have to encourage that from a, from a positive perspective of how do you defend? How do you help not just scare people into submission? Okay, there's a, there's a bunch of things I want to try to pick apart from in there. Um, I want to come back to the open source side of it in a minute. Uh, well, I'll, I'll get around to the open source part by talking about the positivity that you mentioned, um, mm-hmm. because I think that's really critical. It, it it sounds probably possibly super kumbaya and, and whatever, but the, the the ops world, as you point out as well, was very adversarial, adversarial um, especially with the developer side of the house, but but even with the business and other groups of, of an organization. And, and that has definitely changed. And I think you know, there might be some resistance to that some, to some folks in, in security world uh, that it, there, it is by nature sort of adversarial, right? You have your attackers and your defenders. I mean, the whole thing sort of seems set up for that. But I think there's a huge opportunity for some optimism and some positivity in there, the kind that we've seen from really come out of the open source world. And I, that, was dr- that drove a lot of the DevOps piece of things. You know, as we had companies at Velocity where, where you and I met. Um, getting up on stage and kind of telling their secrets a little bit, right? I mean, you had John Oswald got up and talked about how they were deploying X times a day at Yahoo. And then next year, Amazon gets up and does it. And then you're finding out from Netflix, like how they're doing all this crazy stuff they're doing. They're not, they're not holding their chaos monkey cards to their chest, right? Um, and they're releasing these things as tools that everyone else can use. There's a, there's a real, there's, that's, that's had an incredible impact on the industry that's been positive in many ways um you know financially and culturally and what have you and so it to me it's that's part of what we're trying to do with you know with o'reilly and the security event that we're doing is is bring some of that positivity into into that world as well so i I love hearing that because i think that's actually that's more critical than than people might even realize just yet yeah absolutely i mean at the end of the day right it's all about people Right? And it's all about culture. And, you know, if you go to a security conference, generally you want to, when you go back, you want to sort of curl up in a corner and cry, right? Like there's a, there's sort of this, you know, massive influx of, of uh, not just, not just because of like, you know, whatever the world is doomed, but more because the conference is very adversarial, even between each other. It's all about breaking somebody, somebody comes along and, you know, whether they present a vulnerability or a flaw or they present a, um, a defense technique, this, this kind of natural inclination of everybody around is to try and poke holes in it, to try and break it. My uh, my co-founder at Snake is a magician, uh, and 
he uh, is a magician in many ways, but is also in the classic <laughs> sense of the world. Uh, and, and Danny says that it's terrible to do magic tricks to secure people because you know, right away they tried to just poke holes in it. They tried to break it. Um, yeah, engineer it, figure out how you did it. Yeah. 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 Even as, more, as, so, more so than most people you'd meet. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. And and the to sort of flip that, you know, when I when I left kind of the world of security and went into the world of performance, you come back from velocity and you're all empowered, right? You're all this energized. This is like great group of people that want to make the web better. And they've just given me these amazing tools and techniques and case studies, you know, whether it is to actually build or it is to champion it inside, uh, or if it's just the answers to questions that I had. So I think it's positivity, it's sharing, uh, and it's this notion of doing it together uh, versus versus sort of being one against the other. So yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled with Riley's in general jumping into the security world, because I think this type of um, of mindset, this type of uh, of culture is something that we that we absolutely have to do for anything. It precedes any sense of uh, ownership that people might have, any movement in the tooling space. I think, you know, it's all at the end of the day, it starts with people. Oh, you're singing my song for me right there. Uh, <laughs> so I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about a favorite topic of ours, I know, um, which is also sort of, again, about people um, in a way, in which is one of the bigger challenges, obviously, for security now, and for many things, um, ops and, and everyone is the the complexity of of the software that we're building, and and how much of it is is quite literally out of our control, um, you know. And so, it, 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 unless you're able to go contribute to a million open source projects, which means how do you have a day job? Um, unless it's doing that, you, you, <laughs> there's there's no way to to be able to to be able to see into and understand everything that's happening now to all the things that can contribute to what you're building. Um, there's a huge reliance increasingly, um, even in enterprise, you know, um, organizations on open source. And that has a lot of benefits, some of which we've already discussed. But the downside of that for security is pretty strong, right? And, and, and not being able to know uh, where the vulnerabilities are, even if you do know, they may not get patched for some amount of time. I mean, there's just an incredible shifting um, landscape. And I, I mean, I want to talk to you about what you think can be done about that. I, you know, I know you're trying to help with some of that on on your product on the product side, but it, I mean, the the big question really is who owns security for open source? Right, and that's a that's a bit of a fundamental question, and so I think I think there are many many aspects to it. Um, you know, first of all, and I think you're sort of clear on this as well, which is like open source by itself is not inherently insecure, right? There's no more security bugs in open source than there are in another tool. But I think the the challenge we have a little bit is indeed that of ownership, right? If you think, consider a, a vulnerability that happens. Who do you do you expect to to address that vulnerability, right? If you have an open source project, no, not a corporate backed or a foundation backed project, but you know one of the the ones that are out there. You know, we just had Image Tragic. There was OpenSSL earlier on. You know, they're they're projects. You know, with generally a small number of maintainers. They're unpaid maintainers. You know, when a vulnerability comes along, do you really expect them to drop everything? And yeah. and and go and address this. I mean, they have mouths to feed, right? Or they might, and that also right. might change over time. To start with, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And you know, the there's in general open source maintenance and kind of long term maintenance is a is a is an issue in the general world. But yeah. just in the case of security, there's just added aspect of urgency, right? They they're really when somebody builds an open source project, you're not really entitled to expect them to drop everything to satisfy your needs. Uh, but in the case of security vulnerabilities, that's pretty much what you need. Um, so that's kind of one problem, or that's a problem from one perspective. Uh, and then on the flip side, you know, do you really expect a consumer of open source project to secure this? I mean, they 
as consumers, we consume hundreds, thousands of these different packages of open source, uh, and we don't know the code. No, we don't. Uh, we don't understand it. We're sort of struggling to audit our own code. And the reality is, you know, there's a bunch of studies on this that show people don't. They don't audit that open source code. They treat it as off-the-shelf software. So there's a challenge, like, you know, who who does this, right? Who owns making sure that this is addressed? And I think the answer is kind of, you know, it might sound like uh, not really giving an answer, but it has to be all of us. So it has to be some shared responsibility where, you know, on one hand, the open source author, the people writing it, need to be declarative and need to care about security in the first place. Uh, it does come back to tooling. Again, I don't really expect every individual developer out there to have deep security expertise. So they need to have tools to help them. Uh, but then when they do that, they need to to care about security in the first place. They need to declare which trade-offs they may or may not have done, uh, maybe, maybe add some security tests, spoke to a bunch of folks at GitHub about the potential of maybe they should add some form of like security tab or something on a project that has some information about it. Um, so from the author perspective, there needs to be some transparency, some explicit awareness, uh, and some declared aspect of what has been done and what has not been done. Are there any security tests? Has there been a consideration? Is this communicating in the clear and not in HTTPS? You know, maybe even just general aspects, right? Am I writing to the file system? Am I, uh, you know, what types of permissions do I need? And then on the consumption side, there needs to be some some basic hygiene. There needs to be some some caring there as well. It needs to be an understanding that this is not some vendor that is going to come to you and that it's kind of their job to keep you secure. You know, this is a service given to you for free by the community, and you need to do your part and to make sure that you have uh, uh, that you are aware of what's going on in this open source security world. So that translates to you know, knowing what you have, so which open source components are you even using? Oftentimes those come as, as indirect dependencies, right? You're using one package that uses another that uses another. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it includes uh, tackling known vulnerabilities. That to me, so that's what we do today at Snake for the world of NPM. And there's a bunch of tools out there like Quay for CoreOS, Docker, do that as well for, for open source binaries. And that to me is really the low hanging fruit. I mean, for crying out loud, this is a known security bug in a component that you can almost trivially identify in your system. And it's it's all but irresponsible to not have something like that in your system. Uh, and that's also a world where tools evolve. Yeah, I mean, what do you like this? I feel like I keep having this conversation with people over and over again. Um, and try, I'm trying to tease out the contributing factors to why people aren't dealing with this what seems to be the most obvious problem. And I don't know if it's it's just everyone's so slammed and you don't have enough resources and it's really hard to decide to allocate it on that versus something else. Or I mean, what do you think is is going on there? Yeah, it's it's basically around how easy is it and how urgent it is. So when I look at people using Snake, for instance, you know, I have precisely zero conversations where somebody said, no, I'm using NPM, but I don't really care about known vulnerabilities and the dependencies. I mean, that conversation doesn't happen. Um, what does happen, you know, all too often is somebody saying, oh, yeah, cool, you know, really want to try it out. And then you talk to them two months later, says, yeah, you know what, I've been meaning to get to it. And it's been on my list. But, you know, it's invisible. It's this insurance thing. It's this risk reduction thing. And it's just so easy to bump it down the list, right? Same, same as we did for all sorts of ops, kind of uh, uh, disaster recovery tools or auto scaling, same as you might do for accessibility, same as you might do for not building a unit test. So it's all these things that come back to bite you later. But in the moment, uh, they're just all too easy to defer. So I think urgency is the biggest issue. 
Um, for some of these things, although I think for known vulnerabilities today, tools have become sufficiently easy that that's no longer an excuse. But for some of these things, it's about ease of use. So again, security tools are you know notoriously hard to use. They are expensive oftentimes. Um, you know, you usually need to talk to somebody before you start using them, which is, you know, sort of a big no-no in the world. Yeah, of that's sort of not conducive to the way most <laughs> other tooling works these days. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I hope that this is, uh, this is something that's, that's sort of shifting, right? This is a greater than security. This is, you know, the world of technology decisions being made uh, bottom up versus sort of top down. This notion of the fact that you can use the product before you decide to buy it, not try it for 15 days or something, you know, straight up use it, self-serve, API driven, you know, easy to use, caring about how long it takes you to onboard. All these principles that are kind of bread and butter in the world of dev tools need to come into the world of security tools. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought about that as much. That is a that is a really great point. Um, you know, and, and I think, like you said, the de the dev and ops tooling has improved significantly. But even in that world, people still kind of kvetch at times about how things aren't designed well enough, or they're not designed really with the right users in mind. So. I mean, there's, right. and, there's a whole bunch of learning to be brought over from there. Yeah. And to an extent, you know, that's the that's the product competition, right? Like you know, the people would use the product that is easiest to use would win. It's a little bit, you know, it, it sometimes even feels unfair you know, that you when you build these tools, you know, and you try to get a developer uh, to use them. You know, there's this minimalist attention span that totally disregards the huge complexity that our development environments have. Right. Securing your environment is hard, like understanding your environment is hard. Uh, but in the world of, of dev tools for any sort, really, the bar is set really high. You need to be, you know, Heroku light where, like where you, you know, you you say you push one line and it deploys. Yep. And yeah. yes, that was really hard behind the scenes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but at but least for the user, it, was, it was really easy. Yeah. Exactly. So you need to be able to provide some value with a really, really minimal level of effort. And then from there, you need to provide the sort of flexibility and, uh, and breadth so that you can tune it and customize it to your environment. And we want that as developers. But, uh, but for starters, you need to be extremely fast to provide value. So again, another kind of almost obvious truism in, in the world of DevOps, and you'd be hard pressed to find security tools that do that. Okay, so uh, last bit before I set you loose back to the wild. And um, We've had this running theme amongst the program committee for the new security event, of which you are one of the program committee members, mm -hmm. um, which is we've discovered that everybody has their own secret superpower. <laughs> and so I, I need to know what your secret security superpower is. Ooh, superpower is tough. Um... Then here's the best part is what I've discovered from talking to other people about this is you, uh, I'm. You're going to tell me something you think you do really well, and then maybe I'll tell you what your superpower is. But it's it. They're hidden. They're sneaky because you <laughs> think a superpower needs to be like um, flight or traveling in time, and and it turns out the sad truth is our many security superpowers are pretty mundane, but they're powerful, <laughs> right? Yeah. So so take a shot at it. And we'll see where we get here. Um. I think there's sort of there's two that come to mind. I'll choose one, uh, and if it's a bomb, then we'll choose another. Uh, which is, um, I think I can make everything more efficient. It sounds a little boring, but I can pretty much. I'm an efficiency fanatic, uh, and you know, I move like the coffee cups 
in the cupboard need to be above where the coffee machine is because that is more efficient. I would reorganize, you know, things around the house, driving my wife nuts in the process uh, just to do it. I can pack a suitcase like, you know, few others. Uh, and uh, that's also true for tech. Like I always, I can always further optimize, um, you know, make it more efficient. Yeah. All right. Um, oh, this is harder. This one was harder. <laughs> Chris Angs was like so easy. I was like, oh, you're a mind reader. I've got it. But this one, like, so if you're an optimizer, you are, so I would say then you are not subject um, to friction. So your superpower is that you are friction free. Friction free. Hmm. Frictionless? I don't know. That's not quite right. <laughs> what was the other one? Give me the other one. <laughs> the second one I have is that I think I have a knack for explaining uh, technical topics in simple terms to sort of break down uh, a complex topic into its core components and to explain it to somebody who is not necessarily proficient in the field. Right. So you're good. You're good at <laughs> translating. Hmm. I do speak four languages. You speak four languages? I, I do. I speak three well and one half. Um, God, what's the word? What? Uh, it's just killing me. Like there's a word for somebody who's really good with lots of languages and, uh, uh, uh ooh. Poly something, poly. Yeah, you're, you're not a polyglot, is it? What is that? Yeah, no. Oh, yeah, it's actually a polyglot. Yeah, polyglot. That's we use it. it for programming languages, but no, uh, you use it for programming languages. But you can speak multiple <laughs> languages, and you can translate from technical languages to non-technical languages. And so, your superpower is is polyglotism. <laughs> polyglot. Yeah, being a polyglot is a super. You are poly a polyglot. I think we'll go polyglots. with that for now. After we hang <laughs> up, than, I'll think. Better I'll than think the genius. Dramatic. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. I'm going to hang up and I mean, it's going to come to me at like three in the morning. But um, well, this was super fun. And uh, again, thank you for joining me today and being on the program committee for the events. Uh, it's it's awesome to have your perspective on all of this stuff. Oh, this was a blast. And thanks for having me on, on both of those. You know, I'm kind of both learning and enjoying at the same time. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Courtney Nash and Guy is at GuyPod. If you liked the show, make sure to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm -hmm.